Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nail the Door Though podcast. You are tuned into our OITE slash board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Wolan. We try to cover all the high yield points for our board exams as well as our OITE exams. Now, if you haven't already, take a second out and go and please subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's my only ask for today. Well, without further ado, enjoy today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. So kind of moving forward to the realm of uh, spinal trauma, and now we're talking about some C-spine trauma, but kind of just defining general terms what is the difference between a complete and an incomplete spinal cord injury uh yeah so this stuff is important for uh obviously real life but also test taking because it's you will 100 percent on your exams have a spine question and the answers are going to be complete at c5 c6 incomplete at c5 c6 incomplete at c6 c7 blah 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 blah. so knowing the difference between complete and incomplete will help you uh, discern between two answers if you're stuck between two so a complete spinal cord injury is no function below the level and the recovery can't be determined until the end of spinal shock, which you talked about in our last episode is that return of the bulbal cavernosis reflex or one of those things where you pull on the Foley and you get that uh, anal sphincter contraction. And that usually occurs about 48 hours after the injury. So once they're out of spinal shock, then you can have a sense of whether this is a complete or an incomplete injury. And then an incomplete injury is you have some sort of sparing distal, whether that's motor, sensory, or both. And the thing that helps you uh, classify these is called the Asia classification, and that stands for the American Spinal Injury Association classification. And this is also going to be tested on uh, a multitude of either pimping <laughs> rounds, OITEs, yeah. or the ABOS. And so what is the Asia classification? Yeah, so it's divided into letters A, B, C, D, and E. And um, so uh, so A is when you have a complete spinal cord injury. So you don't have, there's no motor, um, there's no sensory or sacral sparing. B is you have an incomplete injury. Um, so you only have sensory, but you can't move anything. Um, C is when you have 50% of the muscles and have that are less than grade three. So they can kind of flicker and move their hand from side to side, but they cannot raise their arms or their legs. Um, D is going to be 50% of the muscles are going to be greater than grade three strength. So now they can raise their arms and legs. And E is going to be normal motor and sensory. So one of the things I remember is E is for as strong as an elephant, because sometimes you forget uh, which way like the, you know, complete versus, you know, more normal is. So E is as strong as an elephant. So, you know, A is a complete opposite and they have a complete uh, a complete spinal cord injury, no motor, um, no sensory or sacral sparing. And then C is kind of right in between. They can they can see they're they're moving their hands, but they can't raise it up. They can't raise their hands to see it, but they can they can see that they're moving their hands, but they can't raise their arms up. So C is going to be 
50% of muscles less than grade three, grade three um, strength. So again, that's the Asia classification. A is complete. C is 50% of muscles less than grade three. And then E, they are strong as an elephant. So their motor and sensory is normal. So, you know, we talk about, um, we kind of, well, we talked about like some of the clamps and stuff a little bit earlier. We briefly mentioned it. This is a little different, but is there any indication for halo vest immobilization? And then what are the safe zones for pin placement? Uh, there are indications for halo vests. They're not used as commonly anymore because surgical techniques and other immobilization methods have uh, been, I think, a little bit more socially accepted. So you don't have to walk around with this big contraption like external fixator on your head, but they do still have their indication. It's really to control occiput to C2 motion. And it's definitely less effective to control the subaxial spine. So the subaxial spine is going to be a lot of the aspen collars and surgical uh, fusions. Whereas the halo vest, if you think that they can get good stability with kind of this external fixator on for occiput to C2 motion, then you're going to go ahead and use that. And the safe zone, it, the uh, anterior pins are above the eyebrow, but in the middle uh, slash lateral one third. And um, if you're kind of feeling uh, that area of your skull right now, you'll feel a really thick kind of line of bone in that area. And that's right where you're placing that pin. Because if you go to uh, medial, you're going to hit the supraorbital uh, nerve. Um, so you want to keep it in that middle to lateral third and you have good strong bone there. And then uh, the difference is kids, you use more pins, but less uh, pressure associated or less torque associated with the pins. So with kids, you're going to use eight to 10 pins uh, circumferentially around the head when the anterior pins are in the middle slash lateral one third. And then uh, you're going to tighten those to two inch pounds of pressure per pin, whereas adults, you're going to use four pins, but each pin is going to have six to eight inch pounds of pressure per pin. So uh, that's with kids, you use more pins, but less torque and adults, less pins, but more torque. And then it's really not tolerated well in the elderly patients. Uh, and honestly, it's really not tolerated well in anybody because <laughs> nobody wants to wear it. But if you right. do... If you do have a patient that needs it, know that the, kin the kids, uh, just because of their size, if you put too much torque, you're going to drive that pin through their skull pretty easy. Um, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't want that. <laughs> don't want that. Um, the, uh, and then I don't know if this will show up on a test. It, there's questions of it, I think, on orthobullets that if you have a pin tract infection, um, you usually just treat it with oral or topical antibiotics, uh, but you want to leave the pins in there because obviously you're stabilizing the uh, the spine from occiput to C2. So if you take out a pin or you cause any sort of instability, you have the chance of paralyzing that patient. So you want to keep these pins um, and only change them if it's absolutely indicated to move them, but you don't want to leave them with two little pins or else you're going to cause instability. So uh, what sort of physical exam findings? Uh, now we're going to actually get more into like 
you world and step one sort of stuff but what uh what physical exam findings would you see in a patient with the brown sequard syndrome also known as cord hemitransection yeah so if you think about it if you kind of just think about the tracks the the spinal tracks and yeah i know this is bringing us way back to med school (laughs) uh and and what those uh what those functions or what those do that you can think about what will happen if that's out so if you have your cord hemitransection with something sharp like a knife or some something like that uh, you'll have ipsilateral so same side motor weakness and loss of the posterior column so posterior column is going to give you the vibration and sense that you lose on the same side and and then you'll also have motor weakness on the same side contralaterally you'll have a loss of spinal thalamic function because remember those crossover and so you'll have contralateral loss of pain and temperature so with brown sequard syndrome you have ipsilateral motor weakness and loss of vibration and sense, and then you have contralateral pain and temperature loss. This also has the best prognosis. Um, what, you know, kind of continuing forth of this, these injuries, what physical exam findings would you see in a patient with anterior cord syndrome? You know, they may be due to an anterior artery injury. Uh, yeah, so anterior cord syndrome, um, that can be due to trauma, but uh, also can be due to things like a, uh, abdominal aorta aneurysm um, bypass or like grafting. Uh, you can see it because you're uh, taking away that uh, artery of Adam Kiewitz, I believe is what it's called, um, yeah. to the anterior cord. And what that is, is the anterior artery supplies pretty much the anterior two thirds of the spinal cord on both sides. So whatever is found in those anterior two thirds of the spine, that's what you're going to lose. And the things that are in that area, um, you're going to have like a lot of all of the motor runs in that area. So you're going to have paraplegia slash quadriplegia, depending on where the anterior artery is affected um and then it's sensory deficit below the level of injury but really only in the spinal thalamic tract so that pain and temperature sensation but because the uh dorsal columns are in the dorsal one-third they typically have a preserved uh sense of vibration and light touch um and unfortunately this has the worst prognosis because it really preferentially involves more of the motor tracks than anything else so it has a worse prognosis and then uh one of the things that is a a lot more common in the cervical spine than these like the brown sequard and anterior cord syndrome is called central cord syndrome what is what physical exam findings would you see in that yes this is when you have upper extremity weakness that is more than the lower extremity weakness and they may also, may also complain of burning in the upper extremities and usually this is caused by like a hyperextension injury and uh, this has a pretty good prognosis although a full functional recovery is pretty rare and i think this is very similar symptoms to like a syringe like a syrinx like a syringeal myelinia um, they typically have those similar symptoms where you have upper extremity 
both you know all the extremities are weak but the upper extremities are significantly weaker than the lower extremities and again they may have the burning in the upper extremities and a trauma setting this is usually caused by hyperextension and it has a good prognosis we know brown saccard has a the best prognosis we know anterior core syndrome has the worst prognosis and this one's just good um so what is the treatment for most um, incomplete spinal cord injuries. Again, incomplete meaning there is some sparing of the distal uh, motor and sensory function. Uh, so primarily you want to decompress them uh, within about 12 hours. And then the treatment for most complete spinal cord injuries is to decompress and stabilize within 24 hours. Um, we've gotten away from uh, the use of adjuncts, um, and we'll talk about it here in a, in a few minutes, uh, most uh, significantly like steroids. Um, but in terms of these spinal cord injuries, in order to have a real spinal cord injury, you probably have some injury to the actual column itself um, of whether it's the anterior column, middle column, or all three columns. And so you want to decompress that spinal cord to help it um, expand because there's going to be edema in the area, but also to let blood flow into it and, and cause a, like a, you don't want it to have like a compartment syndrome within the spinal cord itself. So you want to decompress those. Is this, and, is this decompression done by like a laminectomy or how do they, how do you do this decompression? So Just curious. It, it kind of mm. depends on where the cord is decompressed and, and that's what the imaging will show you. So uh, like if they have a uh, kind of like a flexion distraction, kind of a chance type injury, then uh, you can typically go all posterior uh, and recreate their normal anatomy and fuse it posterior. But uh, like a burst fracture in the thoracic spine, you may need to fish out the uh, piece of the vertebral body that is pushing on the spinal cord itself from the anterior portion and do a corpectomy with uh, strut grafting and then a posterior fusion. And, um, I don't think that they'll get into too many of the, like trying to decide if anterior is best or posterior is best, unless they give you a clear indication for why one would be better than the other. Um, so it's really depending on where the spinal cord is getting compressed is where you do the decompression. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, just wondering. But yeah, it's uh, and after you do a few of these questions uh, with whatever question bank you use, whether it's Red Study, OrthoBullets, um, the SAE books, or whatever, um, you'll you'll start to recognize a pattern, and you'll be like, "Oh, okay, I, I see what they're getting at here. I know what they're what sort of decompression they're talking about." And um, you you talked about this earlier that any fusion these days is pretty much done with instrumentation. There's not a lot of uninstrumented fusions unless it's for like a uh a traumatic just degenerative disease um so a, a lot of times with the traumatic injuries you're putting in metal to help stabilize the spine um so yeah it, and and you may see a, a choice that talks about instrumentation versus not and that'll help you decide between those two oh, okay yeah and then what sort of uh spinal cord injury can be treated non-operatively 
Yeah. So like central cord syndrome, again, you know, the, that was the, that hyperextension injury where you have upper extremity weakness is worse than the lower extremity weakness. So those gunshot wounds, uh, I believe certain gunshot wounds. Um, but, you know, for any of these patients, I think it would be an, it would be an indication to take them to the operating room uh, for a procedure if they have a worsening neurological exam or if, if possibly there are some fragments within the CSF or the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, so I'm sure there are many papers about, you know, treating gunshot wounds uh, to the spine non-operatively versus operatively. But I think generally that, you know, the gunshots can be treated non-operatively as well as central cord syndrome. And... Is there a clear-cut role for methylprednisolone for treating spinal cord injuries? No, it's fairly controversial. Um, it was used historically uh, primarily for non-penetrating trauma within eight hours of injury. And what they, uh, what they used it for or why they used it is um, the mechanism of how it works is uh, basically it inhibits uh, lipid uh, peroxidation and cytokines, and it prevents calcium channel influx uh, and accumulation, which then improves vascular perfusion to the region. And I mean, it's just like any other steroid. It helps reduce inflammation. And by reducing inflammation, you theoretically improve blood flow, but uh, despite giving the methyl, uh, prednisolone, uh, IV, um, they just, they didn't see a clear benefit of it. And they saw more disastrous complications from the high dose steroid itself rather than the spinal cord injury. And so not a lot of people still follow that protocol anymore because it's so controversial. Um, and then yeah. what are just like kind of some key side notes about spinal cord injury and the medical management of it. Yeah. So, you know, you want to have these patients on like rigid backboards for anything. Uh, you want the patients to be repositioned every couple of hours. This helps prevent against ulcers. I know we've all gotten a, a, a consult from medicine about sacral ulcers at some point where uh, with a concern for osteomyelitis. Um, so, you know, especially in these patients that are non-ambulatory, make sure you reposition them every couple hours or, or put in order, or, you know, just communicate that with the nurses. Um, another thing is a lot of these patients may have some urinary retention, so a catheter may be placed, but you also must monitor for any urinary tract infections or urosepsis, which can happen in this patient population. And another thing to note about these patients with spinal cord injuries that aren't moving around um, that much is deep vein thrombosis or uh, pulmonary embolism prophylaxis. And these patients may need these for up to three months. Now, if you're wondering what are the uh, different types of DVT prophylaxis and different medications, we went in depth <laughs> in a prior episode in basic science, which uh, you can you can go back and and look and listen to that episode, and we talk about all the stuff, even like Herodin and um, oh, yeah. the, the Batraban. We we covered all that good stuff. <laughs> Thank you all again for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you all learned some stuff about spinal cord injury, and again, we hope that this is helping just kind of prepare you for board exams or just prepare you and help you learn just some general orthopedic knowledge. Now go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you have not already, and go and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You know, that's, that's the only thing 
only thing that we ask. If you can do that, that would help out a bunch. Thank you all. Till next episode.